We find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and in a way, the First Supper, because really there's, there's one coming up where all of God's people will sit down with Christ in heaven to enjoy that supper again. But after the events of the Lord's Supper and before the events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, we find him praying and his disciples sleeping. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Bear in mind, this is Jesus who is sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And, say, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came again and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding into your word. And help us to leave this evening more resolved to love you, more resolved to serve you, more resolved to stay in your word and to be in prayer to you. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the reasons I find it oh challenging, I, I think, to keep up with the persecuted church, or one of the reasons I do keep up with the persecuted church is when I hear their stories of, of what other Christians are going through and how they live out their lives under the circumstances in which they find themselves, I find my faith is challenged and simultaneously encouraged because as we look at their testimonies, we see God's grace prevailing. And at the same time, we see people persevering by God's supernatural grace under such duress and, and seeing through persecution that God is taking Christian charcoal and squeezing out Christian diamonds in terms of what you see and how people respond to unspeakable persecution with Christ-like forgiveness. And it is an amazing thing to see in different countries, different cultures, um, but still the same Christ and his people still honoring him in the same ways. 
One of the people I got to hear at the Voice of the Martyrs conference last Saturday was from Syria. And he talked about how the church in Syria had been praying for revival. Uh, uh, from other reports I had read, the church was small, it was limping along, it was divided. Most denominations were suspicious of other denominations. Well, I go to this church, you go to that church. It's, it's, it's even doubtful whether you're really a Christian because your worship is different from ours. And so as the church in Syria, as some faithful believers there were praying for revival of the church, it came in a very unexpected way. In 2010, there began the protests starting in Tunisia and North Africa that became known as Arab Spring. And, and these protests swept across North Africa and into the Middle East. And the results were dramatic. We had uh, the overthrow of the government in Egypt. We had the downfall of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. We had uh, the rise of a militant new terrorist organization, Islamic State, which went through a few different name changes, but was initially phenomenally successful in different places in North Africa and in the Middle East. A massive military intervention by the French was had in Mali um, uh, between 2013 and 2014. And then in Syria, as the Arab Spring uprising spread there and people began to protest against their government, the military cracked down hard on its own people, which led to pushback from Syrians, which in turn led to the infiltration of different terrorist organizations with different agendas and different views. And it led to actually a very complex multi-front civil war that, that brought, uh, eventually involved us, Russia, um, Syria, other countries. And so the result was that with Islamic State taking over in Syria, committing horrifying atrocities, which by the way, have done much to dissuade Muslims of Islam. Islamic State has probably turned more people away from Islam than any other single organization. And I'm, let me digress for just a minute uh, on, on that, in that there have been a number of reports from Iraq, uh, from Syria, where Muslims who are just nominally Muslims are simply Muslims because, well, they were born in a Muslim country. And they have found themselves trying to defend Islam by studying the Quran and saying what Islamic State is doing is, is inconsistent with the Quran. They have found out that what Islamic State is doing is perfectly consistent with the Quran. And it has horrified a number of Muslims and compelled numbers to leave Islam. Many of them have gone into atheism and agnosticism but many of them have been drawn to seek the gospel. And in Syria, everything else worldly has been literally obliterated. Your house is probably a pile of rubble, made so by either a Russian, Syrian, or American airstrike. The luxuries, all the things that can lull the church to sleep have long since been blasted away, quite literally blasted away. And so now, in the diminishing of material things, the, the, the spiritual, eternal things have become more conspicuous, more significant in the eyes of believers. And the result is that the church in Syria has woken up. One church 
that was carrying on a, a service, a small service once a, a week, now meets twice a day and is filled to capacity. Many of the attenders, either Muslims wanting to hear the gospel or Muslims re- recently converted to the gospel. And it is a, an awesome and powerful thing that is going on. And if you'll permit me one uh, little side note here, the uh, man who was speaking said that they had a jihadist come into one of their services and he caused a little consternation because they found out later he was rejoicing to hear the gospel and he was being drawn to Christ. But everybody recognized he was a jihadist and the only expression he knew for praise God was Allahu Akbar, which he kept shouting. And then people started backing away and leaving the church building. Um, But they found out later that that he was simply rejoicing to, to hear the gospel and believe. And when Muslims make a profession of faith. You have pews full of former Muslims shouting and, and screaming and rejoicing that, that another one has come to the gospel. The, uh, where we find Jesus is in a situation where he is in great need of the encouragement of his disciples. And his disciples are just overwhelmed with physical fatigue and just too tired to stay awake with Jesus in the hour of his greatest emotional stress and duress. Some of the uh, items in tonight's sermon I owe to Matthew Henry, some of the insights I owe, and, and one of them is that we see Jesus in a garden redeeming mankind who begins in a garden of bliss and perfection from which man rebelled against God and was cast out. And so Jesus comes in to a garden of sorrow and through his perfect obedience will redeem his people. And so it's a fascinating parallel and a fascinating contrast to see between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In verses 26 through 37, it's interesting who Jesus takes with him. All of his disciples are with him in verse 36. And in verse 37, He takes with him specifically Peter, James, and John. And so these these three disciples have a very interesting past to them. It was Peter who just a few verses earlier at the Lord's Supper has sworn that, that he will be faithful to Jesus unto death and that he will never forsake him. And James and John, a few chapters earlier, earned the resentment of their fellow disciples when they and their mother came to Jesus and asked for a special privilege to be put at Jesus' right hand or his left hand. And at that time, when they made that request, Jesus was popular. And so it looked like there was going to be an effortless ascension of Jesus as the king of Israel, the routing of the Roman army perhaps, and then a, uh, an earthly state um, reestablished, except Jesus was thinking so much bigger than that, not just the overthrow of, of Rome, but the overthrow of sin, which afflicts the entire human race. But that's not where their heads were. They were thinking of Jesus as popular. They're wanting to get on that bandwagon. And when they make that request, Jesus asked them a very interesting question. And it was, are you able to drink of the cup which I will drink from? And they readily say, yes, yes, we will. Because after all, everything's going good right now. And Jesus says, well, to put you on my right hand or my left is not for me to say. 
but you will drink of that cup. And I don't think James and John really understood what that meant, nor did Peter fully understand how weak he actually was when he made that bold, heartfelt, and I think honest commitment that he would be faithful unto death. I really believe he meant that, but he did not know his own weaknesses, as we will see later. Another interesting thing about James, John, and Peter is that these are the three eyewitnesses to Jesus' transfiguration. And so not only are they the special witnesses to his, uh, to his transfiguration, but they will be the witnesses to his agony, and they will see that there is no glory without trial. And uh, this is something that, of course, they will personally experience um, after the ascension of Christ. In verse 38, Jesus reveals the depth of his dread and his sorrow. And as I've, I've often said before, and I'll, I'll repeat again because I think it bears repeating, there are many who have been crucified. The slave revolt of Spartacus involved, uh, well, once it was crushed by two Roman legions, 6,000 of Spartacus' followers were publicly crucified along the Appian Way, which was the main interstate highway through Italy at the time. And so they were put out there to be publicly displayed in a, in a gruesome form of execution to discourage future rebellions. We also know that in Christ's physical crucifixion, he did die surprisingly quickly, but... Only Jesus was getting ready to bear in a moment of time the eternal wrath of God, not just for my sin, but for yours and for all of his people at all times, all ages, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And that is simply incomprehensible, that there is no one who could bear that except Christ. And one of the great paradoxes of the cross is that in a moment of time, he does bear the awful and eternal wrath of God for our sin. And so this was a degree of suffering that none have ever sensed or will, and he knows what's coming. And so we have in Matthew's gospel, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. This is Jesus speaking about the dread that he has. We know from Luke's gospel that as Jesus prayed, he was literally sweating drops of blood. That was the intensity of his prayer, the intensity of his anguish, the intensity of his grief, which again is just incomprehensible to, uh, to, to the rest of us. We know it happened, but we can't really, really get our arms around that. And in Matthew 26, 39, we see Jesus falls on his face, begging God the Father to let this cup pass, but he submits to the will of his Father. And sometimes it comes up as we discuss the issue of suffering in this world, is there some other way? Could God have come up with some way to bring about his purpose without the suffering? Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself asked that very question? And yet, we see that perhaps uh, God could have chosen a different way, but he has chosen this way. And sometimes it is through the suffering that we see so much more clearly his grace and his goodness. Interesting, I, I find in the testimonies of persecuted Christians to summarize, 
You won't hear, we still believe in the goodness of God in spite of the persecution, but you will hear, we saw the goodness of God in the persecution. And that's a, a very typical testimony of, of the persecuted church. And so here, in the greatest suffering that any human and Jesus being fully God and fully man would suffer, we also see the great goodness of God because the result of Jesus' suffering is your salvation and mine, and it is simply there for the believing. All we have to do is put our trust and our faith in Christ who took our place on the cross to be saved. And so as we move on to verse 40, we find uh, Jesus in this tremendous agony while his disciples are snoring. And so it's, it's almost a metaphor for the church, isn't it? That oftentimes, while the kingdom of God is expanding and growing, that many times we are asleep. And I, I say we are asleep because I myself am not stirred up to the degree of, of spiritual fervor that I should be. And this is something I think you and I all struggle with. And so I, I will say this, though. God has a way of awakening his people. It doesn't have to be through persecution, although it often is. But God has a way of waking up his people to call us to pray when we're needed to pray. So how much better if we would just push ourselves a little bit to, uh, to pray some more and to be more diligent about that. So in verse 41... Jesus talks about the importance of prayer, and this is, this is a fascinating admonition to his disciples, and I, I think to you and to me also, that this is uh, among the important aspects of prayer. Sometimes somebody might say, well, I mean, you believe God knows everything. Yes, I believe God knows everything, and uh, so why do you pray? And I might ask, well, have you ever prayed to a Coke machine? And if the answer is no, I would say I haven't either, um, because God is not a vending machine. We don't pray as our putting in our, our spiritual coins to uh, get our, our spiritual um, Coke drink coming out uh, the bottom of the machine. That's not what prayer is about. Look at, look at the emphasis Jesus puts on prayer, that you watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, which is good, but the flesh is weak, and that's the problem. Uh, you and I have some enemies in this world, and one of our enemies is our very own selves, our own flesh that is drawn to sin still and still struggles with that. And we have a world that is forever calling us, drawing us, seducing us, screaming at us to go ahead and to indulge ourselves in, in some way and to draw us back into a spiritual coma where we are less effective, less useful to our God. And so Jesus is saying, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, and that was that prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And so this is where in prayer, in communication, in fellowship with our best friend, also the self-existent creator God of the universe, we find in that time of prayer the strength and the encouragement to persevere in the spiritual warfare that, that goes on around us. 
I'm sure you have a testimony of a time when prayer was especially encouraging to you. You felt perhaps rejuvenated, you felt encouraged, you felt renewed, and I have stories like that too. And that's what it is to be in fellowship with our God, to be tapped into that strength and that power that enables us to do the work that he's called us to. There, there's no following Christ apart from prayer. And there's no following Christ apart from obedience to his word. So it always comes back to those two basic things, doesn't it? Do you, do you read your Bible? Do you pray? In the next few verses, Jesus resolves to do the will of his father and his disciples can't even resolve to stay awake. And so you see a, a fascinating contrast there. And then at the end of this passage, we find that as Jesus is about to be betrayed, we find that James and John and Peter are due for some lessons. James and John will learn what it means to drink of Jesus' cup. If you read on a little bit further in the book of Acts chapter 12, during the persecution of one of the Herods, there were a few Herods and none of them were good. Uh, during the persecution of one of the Herods, James was murdered. And it was perhaps during the persecution of Nero that Peter would be crucified. And according to church legend, he was, uh, or church tradition, he was, he was crucified upside down. So James and John will learn what it means to drink of Jesus' cup. And Peter, as you and I often have, will learn the folly of self-confidence because what will happen is Peter, proceeding in his own confidence, will break. And this sometimes does happen in the persecuted church also, that there are people who are intimidated into renouncing their faith or coerced into renouncing their faith. And so it is good to know that uh, there were people like Peter who were intimidated into renouncing their faith, not once, but three times. And then Peter was restored. And that same Peter who denied Jesus in Acts chapter 2 is boldly preaching Jesus to an international audience of Jews who have gathered for Pentecost and saying things like, this Jesus whom you crucified, God is raised from the dead, repent. And the difference between Peter in the garden and Peter at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit and where Peter's faith and confidence are in, in those places. So the more confident we are in ourselves, the more prone we are to fail. The more confident we are in God and the more we realize our need for him, the more useful we become. So in looking at this passage and, and thinking through some of the uh, things I, I got from that conference, I thought of some questions for us, and I always put this in the uh, using us and we because I need to hear these as, as much as anybody, perhaps more so. Are we ready to follow Jesus on the path of suffering? Because that path of suffering can come to you in any number of ways. And I can think of how we have uh, had our faith renewed by some difficult circumstances that we have encountered as, our, as a family in the last year? Are we ready to pray with alertness and passion? Um, I think if, uh, 
If I asked how many of you have ever dozed off while praying, raise your hand. I would want to do it with eyes closed so you wouldn't see me raising my hand. Um, because, you know, we do that. Uh, sometimes we pray early in the morning or late at night, and sometimes we get a little dozy. And, and so where's, where's the passion? You know, where's the alertness? Are we willing to submit ourselves to God's will and to resist the flesh, which always seeks its own ease and pleasure? As the ice cream truck goes by, as I'm, as I'm saying that, that's very well timed. Um, are we ready to forsake confidence in ourselves for confidence in what God will do through us? There's a big difference between self-confidence and Christ's confidence. And then finally, as, as, as uh, marvelous as this revival in Syria is, uh, the man who was, uh, the, the Syrian believer who was relating all this to us said that there was one haunting question and that was, Christian, before the war, where were you? And is this what it took? It, you, your, your house, your, your apartment complex had to be blasted to the earth before you saw the deed to, to evangelize your Muslim neighbor? There were even some who said, I was curious about what you believed and I would stay outside of your house hoping to talk with you. And it took a war in Syria, a devastating war, which will be a long time recovering from to bring about this fantastic spiritual revival that's going on. Will God have to do that to you and me to finally get us praying and, and as passionate as we should be? One more illustration I, I thought was particularly convicting. We heard testimonies from different countries, one of which was China. And a Voice of the Martyrs representative was flying from one place to China in another. And he sat down next to um, an elderly Chinese woman. Now, uh, I have another friend who knows his Asian culture quite well, has a Chinese wife, and he said, um, one of the cultures that is just very direct is the Chinese culture. They do not beat around the bush, and they ask you very directly, and they speak their mind very directly on, on any issue. So he sits down, and this woman turns to him and says, are you a Christian? And he says, well, yes, I am. Are you a real Christian? Do you read your Bible and pray? And he says, well, yes, I do. And she says, okay. So then she turns and talks to the man next to her. And then she says in his hearing, you need to pray for him. He is not a Christian. And it's just, you know, to us, that's like, whoa, whoa, that's awkward. But this is, this is how Chinese evangelism works. Well, the voice of the martyrs representative found out later that her husband was on the same plane, that they deliberately book seats in different rows they deliberately book middle seats so that they can each evangelize up to two people apiece on a three-hour flight from one place in China to the other. And they want to make sure that at least four people have heard the gospel um, before that airplane lands. And that is an extraordinary degree of, of commitment. And as far as I know, this isn't even a Chinese pastor and his wife. This is just a devoted Christian couple. Uh, obeying the Lord and, and uh, carrying out the Great Commission in obedience to him. Now, as we leave the garden, it is important to remember what happened afterward, and it is important to remember this for our own encouragement in that that's not the end of the story. Jesus' arrest and crucifixion 
is not the end of the gospel because his crucifixion will lead to his burial, his burial to his resurrection, his resurrection to his ascension. And then finally, that leads to our ultimate calling, which is our glorification in Christ, where we will be so utterly changed and made different by the power of God in the resurrection. We, we look forward to this resurrection. We look forward to what will be done to us through the resurrection because our Lord is the one who rose from the dead under his own power and conquered death for you and for me. And so as Jesus was looking forward to this, we have this reminder from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, a very familiar passage. But this shows where Christ went, and it also shows where we follow. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, referencing the saints from chapter 11, the Old Testament saints who witnessed to us of God's faithfulness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, meaning looking down on the shame, disregarding, almost spitting on the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Remember the example of Christ in his suffering, and you be encouraged in your suffering. And so this is where um, the author of Hebrews is taking us. And in verse 4, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And for some of God's people, they have resisted uh, to blood in the striving against sin. Um, many have not, but we still strive against sin. And so be encouraged, be encouraged that Christ in his suffering conquered. And you and I, in the difficulties that, that God has ordained for our lives, we also, because of Christ, will conquer. So let us be praying and watching while we have the time and eschatology, the study of the end times, always comes down to this. Jesus knows when he returns. We don't. And so what we need to do is to be busy about his work and leave the return date up to him. Isn't it interesting that every major end times passage of scripture is followed by an admonition to not watch the calendar, but to be busy doing what he has called us to do in the meantime. And for the unbeliever, and I thought Matthew Henry put this uh, quite well, he points out that in the garden, Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power, was deeply grieved and sorrowing the judgment that he was about to receive. How much more so should an ordinary person dread that judgment to come for their own sin? And so it's a terrible place to be uh, to be under the righteous and rightful judgment of God for our sin. But what a glorious place to be, to be the object of his love. Let us pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. 
Thank you for the example of Jesus. Encourage us, please, to persevere and to awaken and to stir ourselves to, to greater works as you enable us. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.